Written on the pages of the great book of nature lies a truth so profound that it has beckoned men and women throughout the ages to seek its wisdom. We will continue this quest and study many stories of humanity as we search for this light. On this journey, we will examine philosophy, religion, and science to uncover the hidden mysteries behind myth and legend using the symbols of universal Freemasonry. Welcome to Legends of the Craft. Welcome back to Legends of the Craft. I'm here with my co-host, Brother Axel Savari, and today we have another exciting legend of the craft. We'll be talking about Freemasonry and the mystery of time. And what we mean by that is we'll be looking at how the ancient people, the people of the ancient mystery schools, perceived time and how they divided time into different ages. And these ages were a cycle that would be repeated over and over again until we, the members of mankind, will overcome certain lessons and ascend to the gods. Yeah, I think one of the... when. When we think about masonry as a descendant of the ancient mysteries, there's an important part of how ancient people thought that we do not understand in this world. So for those unfamiliar with masonry or perhaps from a different Masonic tradition than, uh, than co-masonry, we consider masonry to be a descendant of what we call the ancient mystery schools, the somewhat religious but really esoteric traditions of ancient societies right like so the greek mystery rites and things like that so it is our opinion that modern masonry is a descendant of those systems and so to fully understand our system in the modern age we have to understand the kind of thinking that created it and the kind of thinking that created the ancient mystery traditions has almost nothing in common with the way that we in the modern era think. And I think as we'll reveal today in the podcast, a lot of it, almost all of it, has to do with their perception of time and the, and the purpose of time on Earth. So the ancient people, Brother Axel, they, they basically built their civilization around temples, right? And if we look at what a temple really is, it's nothing but a big clock, right? A temple can be reduced linguistically to tempo and tempo is sort of you know a way we tell time it's a rhythm right it's the tempo that we use in music and knowing when to do things was the most important thing right the harvest when to plant seeds when to mate these were issues of life and death and the priests held the keys to life and death Today, we take the stuff for granted. We have watches, we have computers, we have satellites in space that tell us down to the nanosecond what time it is. But back in the ancient times, they didn't have any of that. So they needed to go to temples. And these temples, basically, um, were a reflection of the sky because the sky is what told these priests what time it was. And this perception that they created within the temples created this consciousness that you're talking about, this, this mindset that they had that has been altered with technology, that has been altered um, by this idea that time is linear. And the ancients thought time was, was a cycle. Everything was a cycle. Everything was going to get repeated over and over again. And um, it was actually the Hebrews, which is the ancient Jews, that created this idea that we're, we're heading towards a destination. But before that, 
or around the world, nobody thought that. There's like there's these 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 cycles that mankind goes through, and they're going to be repeated over and over again because the Earth is a testing ground for humanity. And that's really the view that you'll find reflected in the symbolism of masonry. So even like as any mason listening to this will know, in the opening or the closing of a lodge, it's it's reminiscent of of the cycles of the creation and the destruction of the universe. And so that that's what these temples, what what was going on inside of them was an imitation of these of these grander cycles that they would observe in nature. And their belief was essentially that by reproducing those cycles on earth, in the space that you do that, you are aligning yourself with the the flow of the universe. That essentially that these these cycles, the the tempo that you're talking about, has always been happening. And we as human beings kind of awaken to this when we're born and we and we can perceive that these cycles are going on. Now, if we organize uh, reproduction of those cycles, wherever that reproduction is, that area is in line with the natural tempo of the world. So from the temple, it expanded out into the civilization itself. So that's why things like holidays were so important to the ancient peoples because they marked specific um, beats of the tempo of the universe. And if your civilization was keeping time with the universe, then it was doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. Whether bad or good things happened to you, it wasn't really important. It, what was important was that you were following these cycles. So misfortunes come. But, according to the priest, they come as a result of either natural rhythms of creation and destruction or by our ignorance or by our ignoring of the special rites that are established to commemorate these beats in the cycle. So when a society would deviate from performing the rites, they would fall into a state of misfortune because they were fundamentally out of sync with the universe. And so, and to be restored to that state, they would have to start once again aligning themselves with this with this tempo. This is why in masonry, um, there's the two main feasts of the Saint Johns, right? So Saint John the Baptist um, is um, that feast is held on June the twenty fourth, right? It's just the solstice, and on December the twenty seventh, it's Saint John the Evangelist. And there's always been the speculation, like, well, why do we do this? Well, what are these, why are these St. John's important? They're not really mentioned, really, uh, anywhere in the ritual outside maybe the opening uh, that a mason comes from a lodge of the St. John's. And really what it is, is it's, a, it's, it's the ancient temple, right? It's the two solstices, winter and summer solstice. And these are the times of the year when the sun either is at the lowest point in the horizon or the highest point of the horizon. Uh, where the sun has reached its zenith or, you know, has gone down into the valley, so to say. And so we mark these as masons because our work on the mystical temple, right, that temple made not of hands, is aligned to this tempo of the solstices. We track the sun. And this goes to an important point that different civilizations had different type of calendars. So most of the world today uses the Gregorian calendar, right? But there are other calendars, and typically these calendars either follow the moon or they follow the sun. Some of them, like the Chinese calendar, follows both of them. So it's a lunisolar calendar. Um, and that's really actually really important. It, is, it doesn't seem like a real important point, but like magically, mm -hmm. are you following the energy of the moon or are you following the energy of the sun or is it some sort of combination of the two? 
And to your point, Brother Matias, like I, I, it, it, it's very magically important which celestial body your society follows. And so there are, the, I mean, I guess there's three kind of frames of reference in, in one sense. So there's the lunar frame of reference. So in ancient thought, the moon orbits the earth, right? It, it is a, it's um, an influence that keeps one connected with the earth. So you'll find a lot of, for example, um, a lot of like nature-based traditions, uh, which Freemasonry is based on nature, but a specific part of nature, as we'll see. But like lunar-based traditions will tend to venerate uh, the circle as a, as a kind of like basic symbol. Um, they, it's all curves, circles, and very much about um, like remaining in the earth. So before the advent of the kind of solar worship, a lot, what you have pretty much all over the earth in prehistory is this idea of the worship of your ancestors. And the ancestors live in the earth that you bury them in. So in, in very like prehistoric Greece and Rome, your ancestors live underneath the house where you bury them. The, the underworld literally means the world under your feet. They were thought to live in the, in the familial earth. That's why you could never really leave your family home is because you were buried there, your fathers were buried there, you just lived there forever. With the advent of the solar cults, along comes the idea that we can, we're actually supposed to be directing our progress away from the earth. That, um, that the earth and matter are this kind of illusory state that we're born into and that we have to follow the path of the sun upward and out of earth and matter. And that's what informs the, the kind of the state religions of, of Rome and Greece as we think of them. Like when you think of Rome and Greece, you think of um, Jupiter and Apollo and those kinds of sky gods. That comes from a solar worship. And then you have the third frame of reference, which is what we live in now, where none of this means anything anymore. And it's all just kind of ancient, silly ideas well, that we need to abandon. I mean, it, yes, nobody knows it, but it's still based on all of this, yes. whether people are aware of it or not. But the fact that we're not aware of it, um, it's not that we lose magic, it's that we're not in control of the magic. It's controlling us. Um, masonry is a solar cult. Uh, some people are going to argue this fact, but... You know, when we open the lodge, we we take you know note of the position of the sun. You know, the the master representing the rising sun, the senior warden representing the setting sun, and the junior warden representing the sun. It's meridian. Like we mark the sun in the sky. The whole lodge is created around solar positioning. Yes, we have some symbols of the moon in the lodge. It's not that we negate it. So we're kind of Luna solar mm-hmm. to a point, but. Mostly we're solar. We worship the sun as masons because we worship labor. We we worship the heavens. We worship the highest. We worship um, transcendence, right? Well, I, I think people might be uh, people unfamiliar with masonry and probably even some masons might be surprised to hear you use the term worship in connection with Masonic rituals. But I, I would agree with you that that's exactly what it is. But whenever you reproduce something in a, in a holy setting, that's what worship really is. Like... Masonry is a mimicry of of the sun's path in nature. Like that really at its most basic sense, like what we do in a Masonic Lodge is basically acting out the motion of the sun. It's not we're not acting out the motion of the moon. We we move in a particular way. We like you said, we mark particular stations because we're we are tracing out the path of the sun. And in doing so, we're trying to become like the sun. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, worship the sun. I mean, that's that's what we do as Masons because we we're worshiping the highest ideals of life. Now, this isn't to sort of like say that lunar worship is bad or evil, but it's of a different nature. It's it's not of a Masonic nature. The the lunar forces, uh, the telluric forces, uh, is like what you said earlier. It's it's bringing us down into earth, right? But in Masonry, we're trying to subdue our passions, right? Uh, we're trying to make the earth weaker so that we can have empire over the spiritual. That's why the compasses uh, need to be liberated in the three degrees and placed on top of the square, the square being lunar or earthly and the compasses being heavenly or solar, right? And this symbology has always been there in masonry. It's just been forgotten by a lot of people. But the moon is important, but it must be led and empowered by the sun. And, and, and this symbology exists in, in science itself because the moon itself doesn't actually produce its own light. It reflects the light of the sun. So the moon is important because it illumines the night, but it borrows its light from the sun. And in a way, the sun is always chasing the moon, but the moon is always receiving its light from the sun. So there's there's this marriage, there's this alchemical marriage, there's this sacred marriage that takes place between the sun and the moon. But who's chief? The sun, and the moon is subordinate. Now, talking about the sun and the moon here, uh, I don't want to put something into perspective, which, you know, often because the moon is attributed to the feminine and solar, the sun, is attributed to the masculine, we confuse these with biology. So... Men are solar, women are lunar, but it's not really that simple, and that's kind of a mundane and materialist sort of explanation. The truth of the matter is, is that within every human being, whether you're born in a body of a woman or a man, you have lunar and solar forces within you. We have some sort of mixture between these two. And some women have more solar than lunar. Some men have more lunar than solar. So th these are, this is not some biological game here. This is not saying that all women uh, should be subservient to men because the moon follows women. These are occult, esoteric principles. And when taken literally, they just sort of devolve into nonsense. Now, we're talking about truths here of a, of a spiritual nature that supersede what we first encounter with our material perceptions. Yeah, as... as as masons when we're in lodge whether like when you're the senior deacon or you're the junior deacon one representing the moon one representing the sun uh, a woman can hold either position a man can hold either position these are inner lessons that we're learning so when we're talking about the sun and the moon let's not confuse those ideas with materialist biology and philosophy which is way beneath freemasonry you know that just to buttress that idea um you, what you said made me think of the, there's this very ancient concept, I, I think going back to the mystery schools, but we still have it with us in modern masonry. You'll hear often uh, masons say that they are travelers or traveling men. And I think that, so traditionally that means that, you know, they're traveling to the east, the place of light. But I think there's more to it than that. I think it refers to a very, very ancient idea from this, and this is from the, Ved uh, the Vedas. This idea that as human beings, we are travelers in a foreign land. We come to Earth as part of a voyage to somewhere else. So, and, and that's one of the other differences between the solar and the lunar cults. Is the lunar cults say, no, 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 you're, this is your home. This is where you come from. And to this, you shall return. The solar cult says, you're not from here. 
your abode is in heaven. This is a journey that you have to undergo. This is a tribulation, a trial. You are a traveler in a foreign land. This isn't your home. And, it, and masonry, I think the rituals of masonry, kind of, especially the, the initiation, reinforce this idea that you don't belong here. This is the beginning of a very long voyage to your true home mm -hmm. from which you have descended in order to learn and to grow and to contribute to the work of the sun. The Western esoteric tradition, you know, we look at Hermeticism, the Kabbalah, etc., etc., they all mimic what you just said, you know, in terms of their theology, their framework, which is earth is not our home. Our home is heaven, right? Uh, we're here temporarily. Whether you think it's a school, whether you think it's a prison, uh, these are just sort of stories that we tell ourselves to to put context to our, our journey here on Earth. But this is not where we come from, right? So the lunar forces are trying to pull us into Earth. But that pull is part of the trial. We must overcometh, right? We must get up the ladder of initiation. Uh, we must journey uh, through the solar system to the fixed stars, to Mount Olympus. And if you look at like... Um, Pythagoras, for example. So Pythagoras imagined the solar system not with the sun at the center or the earth at the center. It wasn't heliocentric or geocentric. He had a hearth. He had, you know, Vista's hearth, this big fire burning at the center of the solar system. So when we talk about the sun, we have to realize that there's really two suns. There's the sun that we see with our eyes. There's the material light. And then there's the invisible spiritual light. And that's why in the initiation, um, when the hoodwink is removed, um, you're not supposed to, you're, you're supposed to be looking in the direction of the three great lights because it's not the material light that you've been restored to, but to the light of the hearth fire of Pythagoras, to, to, the, to the spirit of God, to the highest of highest. Well, and what follows after that, but an exposition of your place in the universe, when, you're, when your attention is lifted from those objects to the sun, the moon, the stars, and their symbolism within a lodge, you're then given essentially a roadmap of where you are, and the remainder of the initiation is, is instructions to get back home. And, and, and really, that's the work of the other two degrees of the Blue Lodge, is, is guiding you back to your eternal home. And there's a symbol for this in masonry. It's called the blazing star. So we often see the sun and the moon depicted in Masonic Lodge. But there's this third light, luminary, mm. which is the blazing star, which is the star of initiation. And it's our destination. You know, it rests atop the, the ladder that we're climbing, of Jacob's ladder. And so we're seeking the highest. So that is why we are a solar cult and not a lunar cult, even though there are lunar images. Mm -hmm. uh, but they're not the guiding luminaries, right? No, and, and masonry is a, I think, a total philosophical system. So it's it's not like it's not like oh, we just focus on the sun to the exclusion of all else. No, it's nothing is excluded, but everything is in its proper place. And so, and masonry does declare a a proper orientation for its for its initiates for its members. So the ancient world had this view that is still preserved in masonry, but the Hebrews. Uh, created this linear thought, right? You know, that, that we're basically just taking steps towards a destination, that there is no cycles. Um, and you can see this kind of when you break down the, the words and, you know, the verses of the Old Testament where, you know, everything, they're, they're pointing forward um, towards an end. So there's, you know, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Uh, but the ancient Hindus and the ancient Greeks and the ancient Egyptians and Chaldeans and Assyrians and Babylonians... They did not have this perception. This no. was going to be repeated 
until the scenario ended because we failed or succeeded uh, or, or indefinitely, like that there is no beginning and no end. And this is a huge distinction, but this, but this also creates science in a way. So like when we look at our, the scientific method, uh, the idea of processes as we do today, the, the ancients could not conceive of reality this way because everything was a pattern. Uh, and now we see everything as these processes that are leading us to, towards some destination. And this is, you know, indirectly by, by Hebrew thought. Mm-hmm. Now, I would argue that Christian thought is not the same. So when we look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, I would say that the New Testament returns us to ancient thought, right? Mm-hmm. Why? Because it's all about the Son of God. It's about the sun. Mm-hmm. It's about the light. Uh, the Old Testament's telluric. It's lunar. And the New Testament is solar. It's looking to heaven, right? And there's a huge distinction here between the Jews and the Christians, in my opinion. Well, and this is not the first time in history that this has happened. So if we go back to the ancient Greeks and the Romans, the, the, this same revolution uh, between uh, lunar and solar forces happened there, too, with the... With the uh, with the institution of what's sometimes called the Uranian pantheon, essentially, so that there was there's this earthbound ancestor worship that was based on a lunar calendar, and then along and this kind of with alongside material history, there was there was some kind of force from outside that came into what we now call uh, Greece and Rome. Back then, it was just the Etruscans, and I I forget who were the original inhabitants of Greece, but this outside force comes in and they bring these solar gods with them and they start directing their worship um, upwards. The 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 Pelasgians. The Pelasgians. That's yeah. exactly right. And so, the, so the, we don't exactly know where they're from, but there's this force that comes from the east and essentially colonizes these areas and institutes these solar gods. So, again, actually, you know, it's funny that this this same thing kind of um, emerges again from the Middle East two thousand years later with the, with the advent of Christ. That the, the, this cycle itself, this overcoming of the telluric forces by solar forces is manifested in a cyclical manner throughout history. Very interesting when you, would, you know, your reference there to these pre-Greek inhabitants of the Aegean coastline, um, because there's a theory, and I think it's a very good theory, is that the, um, the, ancient, the very, very ancient gods, even before we have like a lot of historical proof, is that there may have been matriarchies. You know? Right now there's no evidence of any matriarchies on the planet. Um, but that this idea is that you know, based on like findings and Crete and all this, that the uh, all the little like um, statues and and uh, plates with depictions on them and in 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 cave drawings depict the mother goddess. You know what we would call like Demeter today, uh, Inanna. But before that period, um, that it was only so it was only mother goddesses that were worshipped. But then these these Greeks came with their solar gods, with Apollo and Zeus and all these men, and they conquered the ancients, and they became what we know as the, the Greek civilization. And what they did is they didn't vanquish the old gods. They essentially, their, their male gods uh, married all the old mother goddesses Mm -hmm. and that's why we have like an equal number of mother goddesses and then male gods but the male gods that's why there's all these rapes these these rapes uh, all these stories of rape uh in greek mythology because literally the male gods raped all the mother goddesses and forced them into marriage Mm -hmm. so it was a subjugation of the mother goddess and then from that time forward it was all like it was male 
God. So that you have male domination, you have the patriarchy uh, being invented at that point, where before that they theorized that it was all mother goddess worship and that there were matriarchies. So this is this is somewhat of a tangent, but it's similar to what you're talking about. I, I was reading recently about. Um, Roman religious practices in connection with their military conquest. So this is how the Roman uh, pantheon expanded to the degree that it did, where they have, you know, gods for everything down to like cabinets and shoes and nails and things like that. Is whenever they would uh, encounter an enemy civilization, and to the Romans, all other civilizations were enemy civilizations, they would, they would discern who their gods were. They would send spies to find out who their gods were. And then their priests would say, abandon these people will worship you 10 times as much as they did and that's and they and so they believe that when they would go to a place this is it goes back to what you're saying earlier is when to do something was the most important thing to the ancient people no wars were started until the omens were correct mm -hmm. until they had received a sign from the gods that they wanted to conquer that they were welcome they wouldn't launch a war but once they had perceived that an enemy's god had acquiesced to their request of conquest, they would go and conquer that population and then take on that god and add it to their pantheon. But again, this is an ancient context because today people are like, well, gods are just made up. They're just symbols and all that. But the ancient people believed this was very real. They believed that their enemies' gods were real. They had power. Mm -hmm. And so, like you just said, you know, the Romans believing this would then make offerings to these gods to, to bring them to their side, right? And this is why it was such an important point of imperial legacy to modify the calendar in some way. So like the Julian calendar, which is what most of the Mediterranean and European world would use before the advent of the Gregorian calendar, was an, a Roman imperial calendar where, where these, you know, the, the months were created and named um, in, in the way that like, so because the Roman emperors thought of themselves in the later stages as gods, that they were, they were essentially elevating themselves by being emperor to the pantheon, that they had, to, they had to contribute to the way the people understood time. Because, again, time is so intimately connected to the religion of the people, and the religion of the people was these ancient civilizations. There was no ancient civilization without a, civiliz a civilizing religion. Like, your religion was your society. And that's why today, using the Gregorian calendar, we have Christmas. Christmas is the winter solstice. To the Romans, it was Sol Invictus, mm -hmm. you know, which was a festival, you know, the triumph of the sun. All the Christian holidays today are somehow came from the older holidays, from the pagan holidays, from the Roman Greco holidays, the, the, the Babylonian holidays. And, and so we really have the same holidays. We, they've been made secular, and we don't even understand why we do them anymore, but we keep doing them mm -hmm. because there's a part of us that cannot let go of these cycles. And frankly, it's not that we can't let go. Like We shouldn't let go of them because they are a part of us. We must continue worshiping. Even if we went to the stars, we must worship these holidays on the right days because it's part of our internal clock, right? There's something genetic and biological about reflecting at certain times of the year, celebrating at certain times of the year. And so whether you know it or you don't know it, you need to do it because the Hebrews are wrong, in my opinion, in, the, in this case. Like, it's it's not linear. Mm -hmm. it, it is, it's, it's a cycle. We are a cycle. You know, women have a 28-day cycle because women follow the lunar cycles, right? They, they're, they're telluric in that way. And men follow a solar cycle, right? 
And so that's what makes men and women different is that our internal clocks are different. You know, it's, it's very interesting. You, you bring up the point about the, the kind of like genetic memory that all of this sort of invokes. You know, just last night we celebrated Candlemas, which is held traditionally on the 2nd of February. And it's supposed to and, and in 40 days after Christmas, 40 days after Christmas. And, and in researching it, we found it's it falls on the same day as Imbolc, the, the ancient pagan festival marking the midway point of winter. Um, and it, and it, and what's so interesting is like for the past week or so, I've noticed with, you know, all the people I work with and everything that everybody's kind of, they're getting a little bit restless. Um, the kind of the coziness of winter is starting to fade. People are grumbling about all the snow. They want it to get warmer. Uh, it's groundhog day that same day, you know, in America, there's a, that, that's a secular version. It's a secular it. version, but it's, but we all kind of have this like awakening in us. Like it's in the blood, like around this time, you're like, all right, I'm ready for it to get warmer now. I, I remember the, the sun is getting higher in the sky. I'm ready for the warmth of spring there's to more start light. showing itself. There's there's literally there's more light, but it it's like it gets to a point and it kind of it activates something mm-hmm. in us. Like 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 the same way when you're uh, when you're gardening you're, and your plants will produce flowers or fruit depending on the amount of UV radiation. I don't think we're all that different from vegetation in that regard. We are all still creatures yeah. of this realm, and I think we respond to these natural rhythms, even though in our society we've done as much as we possibly can to eradicate them. So outside of the you know, linear way of perceiving time or the, you know, viewing them as cycles, uh, viewing time as cycles, there's, there's other, two other uh, ideas, which is time is a paradox and time is unreality or an illusion, right? Uh, so it's been said that a lot of people that, that have deciphered the, the mysteries of the Kabbalah, that, that, that sort of mystical Judaism looks at time as being a paradox, a paradox that presents us the opportunities to overcome this misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. But in more modern times, you know, you, you always hear the, this, this, this notion of oh, time's an illusion, time's an illusion. It doesn't exist, right? Um, that is a very modern idea. Not that it didn't exist in ancient times. There was um, a school in Greece that perceived this. Um, they thought time was an illusion. But it's something now that I think it's permeated society a lot. And a lot of people think that time is an illusion. And I think that's that may be true or not true, but I think people don't say it because they actually understand it. It's just kind of a clever thing to say now to make you sound smart. Um, and I don't think you're very smart if you just repeat a bunch of stuff you, you don't understand, right? But um, these other two views, I think, play an important part of modern society. So, like, with postmodernism, did a podcast on that, they have deconstructed time. So they're like, oh, all these cycles, the idea of linear thought, uh, linear time is nonsense. Time is an illusion. We've just made it up because we've made up everything in the universe as human beings. And so they've deconstructed time. They literally have deconstructed um, how we have created eras, you know, when we say like the 18th century or the 19th century, they'd be like, those are just man-made constructs. There's no such thing as the 18th century and the 18th century. The idea of it is just racist inherently, like all, all like, like distinguishing periods of time or like, you know, the, the imperial age or the Baroque age or the Rococo age or, or saying that art, you know, there's the impressionist art period or, um, whatever, you know, art period, these are all just, uh, social constructs and they should be eradicated which in itself is a social construct that in my opinion should be eradicated but it, it does <laughs> uh it does kind of 
you know, lend itself to the idea. Like, we're just in the zeitgeist of not believing in anything anymore. So there's this, this great German term, zeitgeist. It means uh, the feeling of the time. It's, it's, it's similar to our idea of an age or an era. That, and and this, is, this is what agrees with ancient thinking the most when it comes to time. That, that these cycles repeat pretty much endlessly, right? So in the ancient world, like, the earth has always been here. It will always be here. Humans have always been here. They will always be here. Um, because that that's what the earth is here to do is to produce human beings and to evolve them spiritually. But those cycles, it's like the saying, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. Well, the cycles, they repeat, but they're not exactly the same every time. There's a new lesson to be learned every time the cycle uh, comes around because it's not, uh, you know, contrary to, to that great quote from uh, True Detectives, time is not a flat circle. It doesn't just repeat in the same plane. It's the idea that it's creating a spiral staircase through, through whatever matter makes up the universe, that there is a progression, but that it is cyclical and that it moves slowly and it repeats itself often. But with every revolution, the lessons become different for humanity as a whole. It's evolution, mm-hmm. right? And the zeitgeist, the you know, the spirit of the age, the feeling of the age, is exactly how the ancients perceived things, right? So, when, like when we're, later on, we're going to look how different civilizations looked at time. But like you look at Greece, you know, they had a golden age and a silver age and a bronze age and a, uh, an age of heroes. Mm. These are the zeitgeists for the Greeks. That this idea that there's a certain spirit, there's a certain consciousness yes but that consciousness is evolving so different eras are marked by a different way of viewing it that's why today we live in the modern era and or you could actually say we live in the postmodern era and that's why we deconstruct everything that's why everything from the past is lame it's all social construct it was just invented because the consciousness today is hyper individuality um, and that's at the cost of deconstructing everything that would put a limit on you. Therefore, we have to say that everything that was constructed in the past is a limitation. It's a boundary that must be eradicated. So you're free to make up whatever you want, which, in my opinion, is absolute nonsense, of course. Well, and, and that idea of, of the evolving human consciousness, I think, is, is a close approximation to what we could understand as the temple not built with hands. That, they, that this is the work that masonry and the ancient ministries have always dedicated themselves to, uh, towards is to creating new forms of human consciousness. Not for the sake of just bringing novelty into the world, but, by, but because they retain their connection to these ancient cycles that have always persisted. The idea is that from these, we can derive the proper form of human consciousness and make it manifest in the world. And that that is that layer by layer, we're building this temple that isn't, it's not a, you know, it's not a physical brick and mortar thing, but, but throughout the ages, we add story after story to this temple, like the Tower of Babel reaching to the stars is always depicted as this kind of winding spiral construction. That's the temple that we're building and, and the stars that it's, it's trying to reach into. Or if you, know, if you take the biblical story, the, the, the realm of, of the gods, because there's more than one in that story, we're trying to elevate ourselves to divine consciousness. And we build it layer by layer throughout the ages, throughout these cycles that even though the shape kind of remains the same, ultimately, because we're building on top of it, we're moving to something new. Hence the symbol of the unfinished pyramid. So each course of the pyramid 
is another era. It's mm-hmm. another layer of consciousness. But it's unfinished because we haven't reached the top. There's not a capstone yet. Yeah. And we're continuing to add layers until one day we will place the capstone and we will have reached heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, and in most systems, that's not the end. That's just the end of a grand cycle. And at that point, it all begins again, but at a higher level. Yeah. That, it's that winding staircase that you mentioned earlier. So time. What is it to Masons? Well, it's the sun. We follow the sun. And Masonry teaches that if you align yourself with the movement of the sun, you will be able to prosper and to evolve your consciousness. So the entire calendar of a Mason, the entire cycle of a Mason every year, every month, is the idea of following the sun. Copy the sun and you will improve. Don't copy the sun and you're just going to be, you know, trapped in this earthly existence. We must follow the sun. And that's why we follow the solstices. That's why we follow the equinoxes. And we have a solar calendar because masonry marks specific events and all of them are based on the sun. I like that you, that you, the way that you opened that was by saying by aligning yourself with the sun, because, you know, masonry is still made up of masons. So, so there's the work that masonry is conducting, but in order to do that, it needs, it needs masons to fulfill that work. And in do like, so the work is different, but never really it, but always the same at whatever level that you're perceiving this. So a mason must do the same thing that masonry is doing. He must put himself in this rhythm of the sun. So through the rituals, through the, through the constant, and we do this through emulation. By emulating the sun repeatedly over and over and over again in the sacred space, really by some kind of magical osmosis, we essentially take on the characteristics of the sun. That's why a mason is told to be upright. It, it's this kind of like... We follow the sun in the sense of, in the same way that plants do. Like when you put a plant near a window that gets a specific angle of the sun, its leaves will start growing to that angle. And what's really interesting, you can start turning the pot around slowly to make it grow more straight by changing the angle to which it's looking. Because the, plant, the plant's going to go for the sun. Yes. And we must go to the sun. We, get, we have to be a plant that way. And, and the ceremonies of masonry are the turning of the pot. So, so when you plant the seed... And the, and, the, and the plant starts growing towards the sun at a particular angle, that's like a degree. You take, a, you take a, the second degree or the third degree, you're turning, literally like turning by degrees, the pot, so that it, it's still following the sun, but it's growing in a different way that's still necessary. But the guiding light still remains the same. So to kind of continue that point, um, we're about to recite a little catechism. In masonry, and it refers to the way the sun is perceived. So, there's a catechism in masonry is kind of a question and answer. So, uh, I'm going to ask the question, and Brother Axel, can you do the answers? Absolutely. And you know, I think when we get to the end of this, you, the listeners will understand how important the sun is and how important time is. Not literal time, but esoteric time. So it's, it's a symbolic time that represents something higher for our evolutionary state. So I'm going to begin here. Um, how many hours are there in a Freemason's Lodge? Five. How are these hours called? Twelve, noon, high noon, midnight, and high midnight. 
When is it 12? Before the lodge is opened and when the lodge is closed. When is noon? When the master is about to open the lodge. When is it high noon? When the lodge is duly opened. When is it midnight? When the master is about to close the lodge. When is it high midnight? When the lodge is closed and the profane are allowed to approach. How many consecutive hours do Freemasons work in their lodge? Three hours. What are these three hours? Noon, high noon, and midnight. What are the hours when Freemasons do not work? Twelve and high midnight. How long is a Mason's day? From the beginning of the year to the end. So if we, if we listen, you know, if you listen to these words, it's all about esoteric time. And it's all about work, when you can labor, when you can't labor, when you're supposed to rest. Mm-hmm. So Brother Axel, why, why do you think the Masonic Catechism and Masonic Ritual emphasizes when we can work and when we cannot work? Well, be, I mean, because as we're taught in the first degree, labor is the lot of man. We're here to do a particular work. That doesn't mean we can just kind of, you know, do whatever we want at whatever time. It, masonry is about doing work, but it's about fitting oneself into a, an, into a larger work, into a greater cycle. And so I, I particularly like this last question and answer here. How long is a Mason's day from the beginning of the year to the end? It, it reminds us that everything is this kind of like fractal interpretation of the symbol. So in the first degree, we're taught about the 24-inch gauge, right? This instrument by which not only do we measure the work, but we're supposed to interpret it as how we structure our day, how, how we're supposed to manage our time with the knowledge of this tempo. But then we're, a Mason's day to which he should apply that 24-inch gauge is from the beginning of the year to the end. So it reminds us that there are, that the process is the same, but the scales infinitely extend themselves. So the same thing that you do in a day should be what you reflect in the year. And ultimately, you know, this is a very kind of Hindu idea, this idea of like the day and night of Brahman, that an entire creation and destruction of a universe is but one day to the great God of the Hindus. Well, if we take this idea of, you know, the year and the day kind of being a microcosm and macrocosm of a higher reality, then what we're doing today in modernity is absolutely wrong. This idea that we just work from nine to five every day, all year. Doing the same thing. Doing the same thing. And, and, you know, maybe we get a day off here, a day off there because our, our overlords are kind and give us a federal (laughs) holiday, but you know, it's really all, it's just slavery. Right, Because ancient man followed this cycle where his day was an entire year. So a third of the year was labor. A third of the year was you know, education, um, meditation, rest. It was religious holidays, essentially. And a third of it was for rest. And it, that's following sort of an, an agrarian-type lifestyle. But like, you're not just working on the farm every day as hard as you can. No. I mean, in the winter, you well, can't. Well, you can't, yeah. Yeah. So like, you know, you... you the spring, you you plant the seeds, and then in the summer, um, you what do you do in the summer? <laughs> <laughs> you really, I mean, you you keep your crops safe. Yeah, you're keeping them safe, you, and then you, you the, watch yeah. it grow. You assist yeah. it to grow, and then in um, and then the fall, you have the harvest, and in the winter, you're just kind of hanging out, yeah. you know, and enjoying the fruits of your labor. Exactly, right? and this is. This is the solar cycle we're talking about. This is the Masonic year. So you're not the Mason isn't supposed to just be building temples every day from nine to five, right? 
Now, there was a time to build, you know, in winter you can't necessarily build. And so there's a cycle, we're following the sun. And it's, it's a cycle of, of building, meditating, resting, repeat. And so these cycles is what resonates with our biology. This is how we're happiest in life. But here in late stage capitalism, we're just <laughs> working and working and working. Even though we think we're the freest that humanity has ever been, I'd say no, we're the most enslaved at least uh, at a at a mental level because we're just sitting at desks doing the same thing over and over again and and then people wonder why they're all you know they're on antidepressants and they're not happy and life is meaningless because, well, because we're not you, following well, the sun you, because you have to be in order to 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 live that lifestyle you know I'll add another uh, personal uh, anecdote here maybe I think you can probably agree with this so here in Larkspur because we're uh, lucky enough to to live near the headquarters uh, so three times a year, there uh, we hold workshops here, and so I and I've, having lived here for several years now, you really feel a rhythm in the year because these workshops, like there's so much work that is required to set them up and and to kind of break them down afterwards that the entire year is kind of arranged around these events that you can you can kind of feel around this time we've got a workshop in about two months so energies are starting to move again. We, we start thinking of projects from last year that we had, you know, forgotten about during the death of the winter, like, oh, we got to do this. We got to do that. We got to get the grounds ready. And there's this kind of buildup of activity to a, to a ritualistic peak. And then it fades away again. Everybody goes back home. You know, we, we don't have to, we don't have to take care of the grounds as intensely. And then it builds up again in the summer. And that's a, a huge festival for a week. And there's people from all over the world. And it's, it's the height of the Masonic year. It's the height of the campus. Everybody sees it in all its glory. And then it fades away again. And then there's one more infusion of spiritual energy in the fall. And then through the winter, we, you know, we hunker down. It gets dark. We're pretty high up in the, in the northern latitudes here. So it gets dark. We have Christmas and then the whole thing starts over again. But there's this ebb and flow to life that is, you know, from uh, that's completely missing from when I lived in Chicago, for example, where there's absolutely no connection to the stars. The skyscrapers are so high, you can't really see where the sun is at any particular point in the day. You have no real like concept of the orientation of your life. When we're in the middle of a city like Chicago or New York or something, you're in a stone canyon, essentially, and you have no idea what's going on around you. You don't know where the horizon is. You don't know where the cardinal directions are unless you're really paying attention. You're completely removed from the natural state of living, and you're in this kind of artificial construction. And the only time you have access to is digital, late-stage capitalism time beamed onto a wall or a clock or something like that to, just to measure the hours of your work. The cities are, are caves of steel and, you know, <laughs> yeah. and as such, I kind of associate cities with lunar forces, right? They're telluric, they're earthly. You're, you're, you're basically in a cave um, mm. that you can't escape. You can't see the sun really, right? You, everything's blocking the view of the light. You know, you're only indirectly getting that light like you indirectly get the light of, of the moon. Mm. So to me, the, these, these cities is tearing us from the sun. It's tearing us apart from uh, our goal to get to heaven. It's trapping us in the mundane. Um, I know it's probably a lot of our listeners love cities. I mean, I love going to a city too. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm not saying that they're, they're terrible things, but like, but living day in and day out in a city 
it's difficult to connect to the sun and and really like it's in the cities that that these festivals are less practiced you know mm-hmm. out in agrarian society a lot of the old festivals are still followed whether they know it or not but in the in the cities you lose a sense of time there's there's a different clock there's a different rhythm right mm-hmm. it's not the sun or the moon in a way there's a new artificial scientific uh, materialist clock and you follow a different cycle but i think the cycle is not good for man i think there was a huge change in consciousness when we when we shifted and this is kind of a tangent but there's a huge change of consciousness when we shifted from a analog clock to digital clocks i think seeing a circle with uh portions of it evenly marked off and watching watching a line trace a rhythm around the clock is actually really important to our consciousness. When we're just looking at numbers on a screen, I think that's when we begin to dissociate from reality. When everything has just become a digitization, uh, a simulacra, if you will, of the, of the real world, at least an analog clock still kind of satisfies the rhythmic element in our consciousness that needs to feel that we are in a, a cyclic progression. When you're just looking at numbers take away on a screen, I, there's no real way for human consciousness to relate to that. I don't know if you know this about me, brother Axel, but I, <laughs> I don't wear watches. Mm. I hate watches. I hate my cell phone. <laughs> Thank you for looking down at my wrist to see if I was wearing yeah, a watch. Yeah, I, I was saying you. I didn't want to insult you, but uh, yeah, I don't. I don't wear a watch, and you know, people that know me know I'm terrible at answering the phone. To me, cell phones, um, watches. It destroys my connection with the sun. It, 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 it's this constant like, I don't know, this, this electro shock that's <laughs> just pushing me towards materialist thinking. Oh, I need to go to this meeting. I need to be on time. I need to answer the phone. Like it's this rhythm that I don't like and I don't think really anybody likes it because everyone I talk to, people addicted to social media and everything, there's a sense that like they get lost in the in this this world of social media and this world of, of artificial time where everything is a meeting, everything is a deadline, everything, I have to be here at exactly five minutes past the hour and then I have to go pick this up at this time and, and then at the end of the day, you're exhausted. And not the type of exhaustion you get from working on a farm, it's, it's a mental exhaustion because you've just been zapped of all your like power through this, this slavery of time. <laughs> well, you know, now that... You mentioned it in this way, like it makes me think like what it does really is it makes your existence more and more self-involved when you're constantly worrying about what I have to do because of what time it is like you really you're not thinking beyond yourself. And that's really like that's a state of misery that we end up in. Like it's interesting that in order for this kind of system of industrial slavery to function, it actually needs us thinking constantly about ourselves. You'd, you'd think that that's kind of counterintuitive when you're discussing this, but like this system that tries to control us and our productive power that you're mentioning here requires time because then it, it separates you and I because I'm only worried about what time it is because I've got a bunch of stuff I've got to do. Yeah, and you've And you've got a bunch of stuff you've got to do and I don't have time for you. How often... Do we say we don't have time for something? But then when we when we try to relax, when when we go on a vacation, we go we go because we don't have to pay attention to what time it is. 
Like that's the feeling that everybody's chasing. The reward for ourselves, this this state of being that we're all chasing, that all these social media influencers are trying to get us to live in this way, is this is this state where we don't have to worry about what time it is. So we we and that's and that's what separated the kind of aristocratic class in the past is that because they didn't have to work the land, they never had to care what time it was. They could follow the sun. They could get up with the sun. They could go to bed with the. They could do whatever they wanted because they didn't have to get up at a certain time. Yeah, but you know it, that's very interesting. You say that because so I, you know, as you know, I own my own business, right? So I don't have to report at a certain time because it's my damn business. Um, so I don't have an alarm clock. I have always hated alarm clock, and I think most people hate an alarm clock. Nobody wants to be. To, to be woken up by some sort of alarm, right? So something beeping <laughs> at you. Again, <laughs> technological slavery, right? Um, so I don't use a clock, but I still get up at an early time. Mm-hmm. Almost, I, I have a biological clock that gets me up at the same time. But if I had that clock waking me up at the same time, I would be irritated and pissed off. But I naturally just wake up at the same time, and I'm I'm never tired, and it's never unenjoyable. We th- th- this this slavery of beeps and whistles that are just <laughs> telling us to like do all these things that we don't want to do. I mean, maybe we would want to do them if we could. It would just be natural. Mm-hmm. But again, it's it's all these it's all these noises that are just pushing us in some direction. We should eliminate this this sense of like you have to do this at a certain time. Mm-hmm. And I know that's not easy because we've created an entire civilization around it, but. Why can't we just wake with the sun and go down when this, you know, go to sleep when the sun goes down? Because naturally, you know, I look because I don't use an alarm clock um, that I wake up with the sun. So in the winter, I kind of wake up a little later. But, you know, when when the sun starts, you know, coming up earlier in the day because I don't use um, blinds or anything, I just wake up with the sun. Mm -hmm. The light comes through the window. I wake up. I feel great. I don't need some whistles and beeps and noises and you know my favorite song you know coming on in the morning to wake me up. I think all of that is absolute slavery. So if we're to move on from the system of beeps and whistles that have driven us into our industrial slave cages, what system of time do we replace this with? Because in major like as we've been saying for the last, you know, hour or so, there is a system of time here. There is a natural rhythm to follow, which means that there are things that we should be doing. And if we look back to, to the ancient mysteries, they would always look to the stars to determine when to do anything. All religion is essentially astrology. So when we look at, and, and so the second part of our, our podcast here is basically going to be the um, looking at the zodiac. Okay, so first we kind of need to set up what that looks like. To, to our listeners, for those of you that may not know. So the ancients basically perceived that there was a solar system and that the Earth was either at the center or close to the center. Again, the Pythagoreans viewed that there was a big burning hearth at the, at the center, but yeah, and this Earth went around it. But essentially you have the, the fixed planets, um, excuse me, you have the, uh, the wandering stars is what they called them, mm-hmm. uh, which was, you know, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. They didn't know that there were more planets because they, they couldn't see they them. They couldn't yeah. see them. The, those, the, those seven classical planets could be seen and included the moon, by yeah. the way. And so whether the Earth was at the center or was, it was going around the hearth fire, uh, there's these seven bodies. Again, they're called wandering stars. 
and that's what a planet means. And then around the edge of the solar system is the fixed stars, right? And um, around the, you know, these fixed stars, there are 12 constellations, you know, Capricorn, uh, Leo, Virgo, Libra, etc. right? The 12 signs of the zodiac. And so they realized in, in ancient times that the, these moved around the earth every year. And that's why, like, when, when they, you, they say you're a Leo, right, that's because it's the time of August, and that's, that constellation is what's right above the Earth. But then they started realizing that there's, like, a, a greater, like, macrocosm to this, a greater cycle, which is um, every March 21st or 20th, when is the, um, the vernal equinox, directly east, there would be um, a constellation. So right now... That's Aquarius, right? And they started realizing that over a period of like two, 2,000 to 2,500 years that this constellation was always in the east on the equinox. And then it would move into another one. So they, they realized that not only are they moving kind of every year, but they're, they're moving in these grand cycles that take around 26,000 years, which was considered a great year, right? And so they started extrapolating out human history um, in these great years and the clocks of the ancients, the calendars of the ancients were extremely accurate. This is where we get this idea that, you know, the Mayan calendar ran out, uh, at the end of the nineties and they're like, it's the end of the world. <laughs> it wasn't the end of the world. It was, they just stopped their calendar stopped there because they didn't push it any further. Yeah. Well, um, because they hadn't been around for like 3000 years to update the calendar. <laughs> yeah. So, so the calendar ends, but it wasn't the end of the world. You know, the calendar continues, but they had, the ancients perceived all these, these cycles, which you had to think they were recording for hundreds, if not thousands of years of data in order to perceive this. Well, th so I, I wanted to make that point here because you know, astrology gets you know dumped on often in the in the modern age because it's it's been you know commercialized like every other great thing of the ancient past into this kind of like piece of uh, you know entertainment or tat for you to consume. But it's really like it's actually quite a monumental achievement that nobody really understands because all they see is is the weekly horoscope in the newspaper. But there are. So what, what we understand in the West as astrology comes from the civilizations of Sumer, which were established roughly 5,000 years ago. Astrological tablets, like, like tablets of writing and inscriptions that depict this system that we're talking about, are found intact at, the, at what is considered to be the archaeological beginning of Sumeria. So you have this civilization that understands the procession of the equinox. And this is and this is reflected in, in their buildings. Like they built things that were mathematically mathematical represent and geometrical representations of this idea at the very beginning of their civilization. So you have this civilization that springs out with a fully formed astrological vision of the planets that's scientifically accurate 5,000 years ago. But this requires at least 2100 years of unbroken traditional scientific record keeping up until that point. So this is at least 7000 well more than at least 7000 years from now. 10000 years at least. At least in in order to have like the just the understanding and the mathematical representation of the procession of the equinoxes is a scientific and cultural achievement beyond anything 
that we have now. It, it is a monumental human effort across literally two millennia that we have not equaled. So to you astrological uh, naysayers out there. Um, <laughs> astrology deniers. <laughs> yeah. Like astrology is a fundamental part of masonry. You can't really understand masonry if you're not going to understand astrology. Um, and we have to remember that ancient astrology was the same thing as ancient astronomy. Mm -hmm. It got separated when we became materialists and we had to remove the religious and spiritual connotations of uh, our views of the celestial bodies and of the constellations and their movements. But essentially in ancient times, they were one. And as such, they dominated the way we thought, right? So these ancient tempos, uh, these, these ancient temples that, that, that mark the tempo of the sky, um, were looking at these 12 constellations. They were, and then they started realizing that like when a constellation was directly ahead and one of the planets like Mars or Saturn uh, were directly ahead, there was correlation. So again, over these 10,000 years of data keeping, they recorded so many connections. So they, they would also um, view nature. They would look at the seasons. They would look at you know the weather. They would look how... Uh, humanity was reacting to situations and then they sort of correlated the skies with human activity and so this was the first form of psychology but again it's more scientific than the psychology we have today which is just a bunch of people making up theories about why we react and act to things right mm -hmm. well back then they're like well the reason we are a certain way is because of our connection to the sky and you know, people scoff at this idea today, but I have no idea why it's so ridiculous to think that the day I was born, the moment I was born, and the location where I was born um, wasn't affected by the entire cosmos and its <laughs> cycle. That the, the place wasn't its yearly cycle. Like, why is that ridiculous to people? So, so there's two things uh, I want to bring up in in regards to that. So these these same people that you know poo poo astrology are generally the same people that will fawn over Carl Sagan when he says stuff like, we are made of star stuff. And, and like, you know, oh, isn't that cool that we are we are the, the emanations of a distant star and it's death throes and it's spit out the elements that make us up. It's like, yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with that. So if I am so intimately connected with the universe, why would I not be affected by the universe? Like, like for example, so the moon is the source of the tides on Earth. The, the gravitational influence of the moon is so great that it shifts the oceans of the earth. And probably created life on and, the planet. And probably that motion created life. And then we walk around as flesh bags full of 75% water. We're like, the moon has no effect on me. Even though I'm three quarters water. I'm three quarters salt water, just like the earth. And the moon has its tidal pull on the earth, but it doesn't affect me at all. That's new age nonsense. But the other thing that I wanted to mention here, and this is one of the other fundamental differences between ancient and modern consciousness, is that the ancients thought of themselves as central to the operation of the universe. Human beings to them were the creations of the gods, and therefore they occupied a special place. Like, we were important. We mattered. Of course the planets have an we, influence We are on. stardust. We are they yeah, but they actually but, believed it. And we they, don't. We 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 decenter ourselves and we're like, oh, we're nothing special. We're just stupid monkeys on a floating space rock, just making things up in order to hurt other people. Like the ancient mind would have scoffed at that the same way that we now scoff at astrology. That's why we the term astral body, astral meaning 
star material, mm-hmm. right? Stardust. Mm-hmm. So Sagan and Neil deGrasse Tyson and all these <laughs> these cool scientific hipsters of the modern age, like really they're just copying ancient ideas mm-hmm. and making them popular today. But the ancients knew we were made of stardust. We were astral beings, right? And as such, we are affected by the cosmos, by everything around us. Now, people, again, scoff at the other, like, oh, Jupiter has no power over me. Well, astrology doesn't mean that the actual planet Jupiter is has sending power. a ray into your beam yeah. or something like that. That's no. probably silly, right? Yeah. The idea is that we're just looking at cycles, right? It's not ridiculous to think that, you know, when the sun is its lowest point on the horizon, it's winter. That's a correlation that's always true, right? Mm-hmm. Or when the when the sun is its highest point, it's summer. It's summer. That's a cycle. So all we're saying is when um Leo is above us and you're born, then your genetic material, your biology was affected by the constellation. So the way you were formed was influenced by that moment, this cycle, right? So it's not the constellation that, you know, beamed into you the way you're going to be. It's just like, it's just a cycle, right? Mm -hmm. It's just this, it's that time of the year that when people are born that way, they manifest their personality and their being in a certain way. And, and, you know, no one's been able to really prove any of this because no one's that going to pay to have scientific studies done on this. But I did see one study that I found very interesting that proves this point, which is uh, they this, this university, I forgot what it was now, um, took all this data from um, hospitals. Mm, of, uh, yes, uh, yeah. when, when people like, you know, uh, you know, every given month, like what were they admitted for? You know, heart attacks, you know, diabetes, et cetera, et cetera. And what's really interesting is if you look at the 12 months as they, they broke down the study, um, there are certain prominent diseases uh, or um, medical situations that occur per month. And those actually correlate to the old astrological ideas that different astrological signs have certain physical weaknesses, yeah. right? You know, for the Leo, for example, it's their heart. Mm-hmm. Um, Virgo, it's stomach problems usually. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and then it's like, but this study wasn't done to prove anything regarding astrology. This, mm-hmm. this study was done for other reasons. But to me, it really, it was one study that showed the validity of astrology. You know, it's an, another interesting thing is I, I've played around with, uh, you know, social media companies actually build this in. So, uh, <laughs> like, for example, when you're doing Facebook advertising, uh, they let you, you can customize demographics that you want your ads to uh, um, to appear in front of. And they actually have astrological uh, um Categories, so you can. It, they don't break it down by sign, but it's by birth month, and you can target your ads to people of, of that were born in certain months, in order to, you know, for whatever reason you think it might be affected. I think it was given. I think it was there because, like, this is the thing when capitalism finds something that makes money, like they will exploit it, whether it's whether they believe in the traditional justification for it or not but apparently i guess some people found it useful to advertise to people of certain astrological signs because they're interested in different things and when we look in history (laughs) there was always a prominent court astrologer right queen elizabeth had an astrologer and used this astrologer to plan her defense of england from the spanish armada um uh, if we look at Hitler, like Hitler literally planned, he had, he had an astrologer at his side. And, and while he used the astrologer, I think he ended up killing the astrologer because he was <laughs> unhappy at one point. But he used this astrologer to plan his, 
you know, his takeover of the Rhineland, his invasion uh, of Czechoslovakia to, to plan the invasion of Poland and France, you know, uh, down to the very moment using astrological uh, data. And, well, maybe it was all just nonsense, but he was quite successful. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's there's this other idea, too, that... Um the, and the, and this is easier to do because it's kind of like it, it's a more um, kind of like a meta view of the entire situation. But people have done astrologers have done analyses of where particular uh, planets are at like historical uh, points, and they tend to be the outer planets because they take longer to complete their orbit. So, for example, and I think you'll know more about this than me, but like. Pluto appears in conjunction with, I think, Neptune or Uranus when uh, social upheaval has been known. So like at the at the fall of Rome, at the founding of America, for example, there are certain um, astrological events that will appear in the sky and they tend to they tend to appear at the time of similar historical events. Yeah, I mean, what you're saying here is like you, know, you can run a uh, natal chart, which a natal chart is when you're born. So it was the position of the cosmos essentially at the moment of your birth. Um, but you can do that for a person, but you can also do it for a business. Like the moment your business is incorporated, it's the birth of your of your corporation. But you can also do it for a nation. You know, what was the birthday of a nation? And you can do a natal chart and see what the, the, the country is going to be. Um I think Alice Bailey, for example, says that the United States is a Gemini nation. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can do this with animals. You know, I have two dogs. I have two Great Pyrenees, and one was born in in, in February and is an Aquarius, and I have another one that's born um, uh, in May and is a Taurus. Right? And <laughs> and and it's so funny because <laughs> it, it's absolutely true. Like my Taurus dog is all big and burly and just wants and to just eat loves food and, and, and wants to get around. scratched yeah. and just wants to beat people up. And the Aquarius is kind Soft of a cobbler. and sensitive and yeah. scared of thunder. And, and a follower. Yeah, yeah right? absolutely. You know? um, so, I mean, people like that, they scoff at these ideas, but there's just such validity to it. Now, the daily horoscope, like you said, that you read is, is, is typically <laughs> nonsense because you can't apply a horoscope to a whole group of people. No. It's very individual and you need very, very skilled people in order to do this. But it's not divination. No. It's not. It's based on math. It's based on the location of the celestial bodies and saying that there is a correlation between position and personality. This is very scientific, and and there's no doubt in me that any of it is true. Now, to to kind of bring this towards mainstream, I, I'm going to relate a story that the two of us were <clears throat> present for. Um, I think in 2016, you and I were in with some other uh, brethren of the craft. We're in London, and we we toured Freemasons Hall, which is this is the heart of the UGLA. It's the, it's, it's the mecca of Freemasonry, <laughs> and, right? And, and to any English brethren, I'm I'm I apologize in advance for the story I'm about to relate. But we so we took a tour of of the Grand Lodge building, and we were ushered into to the actual lodge room. And I say room, but really it was a palace. I mean, the thing had like I think the ceilings were like 80 feet tall. It was huge. Um, beautiful organ, great paintings and all this stuff. And, and we were looking up at the ceiling and, and we saw the signs of the Zodiac painted on the ceiling. And we were, and, and because in, you know, in our understanding of masonry, that should be on the ceiling of a Masonic lodge. You should have the painting of, of stars with the signs of the Zodiac, because that's what the ceiling of a, of a Masonic lodge is supposed to represent is the open night sky. 
And so we start saying this to our to our, our poor beleaguered tour guide that oh wow that you know what's the meaning of the of the astrological symbol to even, see if even, he could tell us even though we knew it was, it was a test <laughs> and he and and I'll never forget what he says oh that doesn't mean anything in masonry the the painter just decided to put those up there for artistic reasons and that's when we we truly grasp the fallen state of of modern Freemasonry. Yeah. Yeah, Mailcraft Masonry at that moment in my heart had fallen to such a low level of understanding that it was truly the lost word being practiced in space and time. So we've said before that so Masonry is a solar cult, but again, it's just like in astrology. Your what what everyone understands to be your astrological sign is really just your sun sign. It's where the sun, it's what constellation the sun was in front of at the time you were born. But a good astrologer is not going to look just at the sun sign. You have all the other planetary influences in an, in a natal chart, their conjunctions with other planets. It's the same in masonry. There are there are many accessory symbols in masonry besides just the sun, the moon. It's also the stars are relevant to this. And that's what I, I think, and I'd like your opinion, are all the kind of the other symbols in a Masonic Lodge are meant to represent these planetary influences and their conjunctions and kind of the symbolical linkages that we can see around the the main symbol of the solar path. Well, first of all, in a Masonic Lodge, it's situated from east to west, as all ancient temples were, or, or from west to east, should I say. Uh, it has been inverted in modern times, but it, it follows the course of the sun. But there's the second aspect that the ceiling of a Masonic Lodge is called the celestial canopy. And it, it's actually supposed to be open to the sky. We don't do that because we're modern and we don't want to be chilly. Um, but like <laughs> yeah. a lodge should meet at night and the lodge, uh, the ceiling should be open so that you can see the stars. Now, you can, uh, if you look at the old hippostyle halls of Egypt, you go to Karnak or something, you'll see that these temples had no roofs in certain places. And that's because... Uh, they were built to observe the stars. And so Masonic Lodge symbolically is built the same way where we're looking at the stars. Now we just paint the ceiling blue and put certain stars up there. But symbolically, it's saying that when we look up, we're supposed to be looking up at the stars. We're supposed to be following the stars. So in, in a lot of old Masonic temples, you'll see the signs of the Zodiac placed in a specific way. Um, and this this kind of leads us to the, the next part, which is these going back to the great the great years, right? Which is, uh, um, you know, 26,000 years, right? Which is a whole cycle of the Zodiac moving um, and being observed on the equinox, uh, what's directly east. Well, there's a lot of theories here. And, and there's a lot of old books. If you look like at Frank Higgins, um, mm. he's, um, he's like an old school um, male craft mason who was an archaeologist, wrote a lot of great books. Um, even if you look at the writings of Albert Pike and a lot of these, you know, Albert Mackey, they talk about these things. So if we're in the age of Aquarius now, because again, when we look east on the equinox, we see Aquarius. Well, the last 2000 years, you know, basically from, from Jesus Christ to today was the age of Pisces. It moves in reverse, by the way, it's, it's the procession of the equinoxes. So, 
um, because we're looking up, it ends up being in reverse of the, the way we would order the signs. So moving backwards through time, you know, from, from basically, you know, 0 AD to 2000 AD, it's the age of Pisces. Well, then the age, you know, from 2000 BC to, you know, 0 or 1 AD uh, is the age of Aries. And then, you know, going all the way back um, to, you know, 10,000 you know, 10, BC to 8,000 BC, you have the age of Leo, right? Well, you can look at the Lodge in the same way. So if the Lodge is situated east and west, then where the right worshipful master sits in the east represents the, that, that point in the equinots that determines the age you're in. So right now, the master in the east represents Aquarius. But 2,000 years ago, in a Masonic-style temple, it, you know, the master would represent Pisces, and then Aries, then Taurus, then Gemini, then Cancer, and then Leo. And there is an idea that Frank Higgins says 100 years ago in one of his, his books on masonry and astrology that masonry, as we know, it was actually created in the age of Leo, in the age of kings. Um, and this was a, a paradigm shift in consciousness and that the master represented Leo. And that, that civilization as we know it today emerged in the age of Leo, mm -hmm. with masonry being the temple at the center of the city and... And so the master, therefore, must actually emulate the, that particular age that they're in. They have to emulate the characteristics of that side. So hopefully that wasn't too convoluted. No, and, and, and actually, you know, for our conspiratorial friends that are, that are listening to this, there's another interesting little uh, tidbit of information that's come to light in the last 50 years or so through uh, some of the um, kind of you know, creative archaeological interpretations of, of places like the Sphinx and the pyramids um, by people like Robert Schock and Robert Duvall, there's this idea that the Sphinx is much older than we consider it to be now. There's all sorts of reasons why people think that. That's a totally different podcast. But there is an interesting idea that had it, because of the, the way that it's uh, situated and where it's located, had it been around during the age of leo or the dawning of the age of leo and had it had its original face which people speculate was actually a lion uh looking east had it been around it would have been staring at its own celestial reflection on the horizon at the dawn of the age of leo if it's that old who knows maybe maybe not but it doesn't really matter it's a cool story um but to another point i wanted to bring up that these ages represent those layers of consciousness that we were talking about before in the same way that um, as people Aquariuses are different from Pisces Pisces are different from Aries Taurus are different from Gemini etc each of these ages has a, a kind of concomitant consciousness that comes along with it now there's another example of this in in a tradition that's very closely related to Freemasonry which is that of Mithraism so the cult of Mithras there, the image of the cult was of their god Mithras slaying a bull with a dagger, and so this is this is thought by some to represent the Tarakteni. It's called the Tarakteni, and it's thought to represent the transition from the age of Taurus, the bull, to the age of Aries. That Mithras, as an invincible son, a fire god, because Aries is is the symbol of the ram, uh, and it's a fire sign. Um, that by the fire sign conquering the bull and killing it, 
he actually marks the transition between the two ages with the birth of a new deity. To continue off that point, Brother Axel, so the age of Taurus would have been around 4,000 to 2,000 BC. Uh, but the age of Aries begins 2,000 to, to basically the time of Christianity. And that's kind of the period of like um, the Iron Age. It's the time of, of, of Greece and Rome, of empires, right? So when we think of the age of Aries, that's the age of empires, mm -hmm. right? Because Aries is, you know, the god of war, right? And so these ages do reflect the consciousness of the time period. So the time of Taurus would have been the Bronze Age, right? That's the time of ancient Egypt. It's, it's the cults that worship the bull is ancient Mesopotamia. And that's a time of like, of almost a stubborn dedication to agrarian life of like, we're going to, we're going to cultivate the land. And mm. that required the spirit of the bull to turn a desert into An farmland, yeah. right? Well, and two that there's an, I don't, and I don't know if we want to save this for the continuation of this conversation that we're going to have in the next podcast, but there is this kind of idea that with the turning of these ages comes a new dispensation of religion. Uh, sometimes that takes the takes place of, of a particular prophet um, like Jesus Christ or the Buddha or a, just a general shift in the understanding of religion. Like So Mithras comes along, but before that it was kind of just a shift from uh, loosely organized cults into this kind of more settled agrarian uh, cultish approach to religion that eventually symbolized the era of the bull, but but that with each turning of the age, there's a new religious the spirit. wheel of time. With each turning of the wheel of time, each spoke that passes mm -hmm. brings a new kind of avatar of world religion. Yes, and that kind of goes back <laughs> to one of our previous content, uh, podcasts about like Krishnamurti being mm -hmm. the world teacher of the Aquarian age, right? Um, as Jesus was the avatar, or and Mohammed, mm. um, and Buddha of the last two thousand years of the, of the age of Pisces, which is is, is usually referred to uh, as the Christian era in the West, but mm. it's what dominated everything, right? And and what is the Pisces? The Pisces is a fish yeah. lost in the ocean. And what was the symbol of Christ? The fish. The fish, and and the Pisces represents a very emotional state. It's a it's a state of um, sentiment and feeling mm -hmm. and what was christianity and islam and buddhism it's sentiment it's feeling you know um and as much as people think that the catholic church was this evil entity that was just oppressing everybody and in some cases that is true this humanitarian idea that we have today this sort of liberation theology the social justice that we have today was all invented in the last two thousand years because if we go back to the age of aries during the Greco-Roman times, there There's was no that. idea of these, you know, of, of social justice, dude. No. It was it was all might and power and conquest mm. and empire, and I mean, if you brought up the ideas of social justice, they just cut your head off. So then, to relate it to our order specifically, I, I, I'd ask you then: Does the most sovereign grand commander, who sits in the figurative east of our order, in that sense? Do they have a duty to represent the consciousness of the age, to make manifest the kind of the Aquarian impulse through the Masonic, through the through the entire order, but through the lodge specifically? Before I answer that, I want I want to make a point um, that is necessary to answer the question, which is um, 
the the age that we're living in has a certain energy, right? And um, unlike a church, it's like a church is kind of fixed. It's mm-hmm. dogmatic. It has a specific purpose. Masonry is fluid this way, um, that in each age it changes. So to answer your question, yes. So masonry hasn't always done the same thing. Sometimes it's fighting revolutions. Sometimes it's, you know, uh, creating an enlightenment. Sometimes it's supporting the church, as we see like a thousand years ago in Masonic writings. Masonry changes its goals based on the, the, the energy presented by the Zodiac. So today, uh, every Masonic order is, you know, basically transitioning from Pisces to Aquarius. Now, what is Aquarius? Aquarius is the idea. Well, let me say there's kind of the, the pro and con of each sign. So like the, the pro, of, uh, the pro of, of Aquarius is communication, interconnectedness. Um, intellectuality, understanding. And what do we see here at the end of this, you know, the end of the last millennia and the beginning of a new millennia? Uh, we have the internet, right? We have Wikipedia. We have chat GPT, right? Like, <laughs> like we have artificial intelligence. Like it, this is very much Aquarian everything happening. We're becoming interconnected. It's a time of information. It's very exciting. Um, so what's the cons? Well, the cons are... Um, Aquarian energy can be fanatical and it can be destructive towards a fanatical goal. Uh, so uh, it, because the overemphasis on information and interconnectedness, atheism will probably be the predominant religion for the next 2,000 years. It's, mm-hmm. it's no longer going to be Buddha and Christ and all, you know, the Greco-Roman gods and the Egyptian gods and all that stuff going way back, the, 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 you know, the, the pagan religions and, and the Celts and all that. It's going to be no god, right? Uh, no god, no masters. And that's, that's, that's kind of the negative thing that I think our age can present. And so the grand commander or the grand master of a Masonic order, even though they probably don't believe these things in other Masonic orders as they used to, uh, their idea is to channel the good aspects of the sign towards the evolution of the human race. So we need to leave behind the bad Aquarian qualities and embrace the good qualities. Now, and also as a, as a kind of like meta-historical tradition that I, I think Masonry is, do you think there's also a, a kind of secondary duty to preserve everything? Through the future, so 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 if we're moving into this irreligious age where where we're going to completely go to the other side of the spectrum and say no gods, no masters, none of that, do you think then that as Masons we have a responsibility to preserve the religious energy of the previous age in order that when the next age comes, we are that humanity is never ill-equipped, like like that we never lose anything, that even though what we do in a lodge might become something that's uh, not not welcomed anymore that that people haven't that there's no time for it in society people aren't just aren't interested in it but that it's that but that because it happened we have a duty to humanity to preserve it so that when the ages turn again we might need some of this stuff yes but maybe for a different reason i think so masonry is the great balancer so if we're entering an age in which there could be a good or bad aspect of that age, the only way to promote the good aspect is to balance it with, with the good aspects of the previous age, right? So if, this is, if we're going to be leaning towards atheism, information, intellectuality, the mind, well, the best way to balance that so it doesn't get out of hand 
is to keep the sentiment and the emotions and the devotion and the ritual of the prior age, of the age of Pisces. So just like masonry at the end of the last millennia was combating the church by promoting enlightenment values, I think masonry today has to promote the opposite of that in order to maintain the balance. So masonry is, again, fluid that way. Like it doesn't just have one mission. It missions changes based on the consciousness of the people of the world. I find that to be very interesting because it really like it gives a kind of like an immortal duty to masonry that persists beyond like this is this is why I believe that masonry isn't just a self-help program to make good men better. Like it, we have a, a kind of we're engaged in a kind of cosmic struggle in which the treasures of humanity, the things that are like in every floor of this of this temple that we're building, every progressive age stacked on every other age, great things are created. The last 2,000 years, like there's always bad things going on on the earth. But the last 2,000 years of Piscean religiosity have created incredible things, beautiful mosques, beautiful churches, but not only that, but like great literature, great art, things that came from the Renaissance, the, the entire Renaissance, like things that came out of this that deserve to be enshrined in the in the kind of the museum of humanity, if you will. And, and, and this conception of masonry as the keepers and custodians of this tradition we're not just sitting atop a pile of ashes here you know mourning for a bygone age that we'll never get back no we're carrying those things through into the future in masonry that our sacred fire is are those coals mm -hmm. of ancient ages that we use to restart the flames of humanity when it becomes necessary well, i mean if you look at the masonic story whether you're a co-mason or a male craft mason or just an academic reading the rituals, like it is about the catastrophes that mark certain periods of the world and how humanity reestablishes itself. So masonry is completely fixated on uh, not a year or five years or a thousand years. It's, it's fixated on human history in its totality and how do we survive uh the different astrological ages because there's always a major shift mm -hmm. right uh that sort of destroys the old world and creates a new world but the knowledge of the past like you're talking about this repository of ancient knowledge these breadcrumbs from the perennial religion uh, must be carried through it must be preserved protected we are stewards of that information well it's that protection that determines how like what degree of progress we'll make because if we're moving forward, but then we lose so much in that movement that we actually we end up taking two steps back, then we're in a retrogressive kind of in a, in a kind of movement. So unless there's something to preserve that and to and to reopen it to the world when it's necessary, like we can't actually make that forward progress that we're talking about. But that information is cryptic within masonry. Mm -hmm. It's there, but you have to come to understand it. That's why it's esoteric, right? It's it's only for the chosen or the elite or the selected so like when we look at the uh the legend of the third degree you know we see that there's a conspiracy against the architect of the temple or the builder of the temple and we see that there um, are 15 people involved in this conspiracy but three were can't right mm -hmm. well uh, that reflects an astrological truth right it's a, a, a excuse me an astronomical truth which is you know uh, the 12 represent the, the 12 months of the year, the 12 signs of the zodiac, and the three represent uh, the ending 
of that period. It represents like autumn, you know, mm -hmm. uh, October, November, and December, uh, leading up to the solstice. If you look at it at a yearly cycle, but if you look at it from um, a um, an astrological year, it represents also the ending of an age. Mm -hmm. So, like the, the the main story in masonry about Hiram Abiff is really a story about the stars, about the constellations, and so we have to decipher that information to truly understand it. When we just say, "Oh, you know, there's there's this conspiracy, and we all just have to be, you know, have fidelity and be strong." Well, yes, it's obviously true, but that's just like the most exoteric interpretation of. The legend of the third degree, the esoteric information, you have to understand astrology and the Kabbalah and, 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 and all the different facets of the Western esoteric tradition in order to decipher those secrets that have been preserved from ancient civilizations. Yeah, it's it's kind of like and, and and to make a point about, you know, what you said, the chosen, the elite, or the selected, people have this idea of Mason that like we're the ones doing the selection. That it's not that so in, in masonry, at least, and I'll speak only for myself on this, but I think you agree with me that masonry itself has a consciousness. It's not you and I doing the selecting. Now, granted, like if somebody applies to the lodges that we belong to, you know, we'll, we'll evaluate their application. But masonry itself is calling its members to it throughout time. I think this is this is my speculation, but I think that it the the information isn't is, all of this our speculation <laughs> well yeah, yeah that's that's true this podcast could be renamed brother axel and brother matthias speculate um but i think the information is cryptic in that way f for the safety of masonry so that this can't be exploited to to uh you know to gather material power or resources to oneself the idea that masonry has something to say to its members and that it is in the ritual that everybody goes through, but not everybody is going to get what that's saying. And the, and those that do are the ones that carry the tradition, the, the ones that generally move through to the higher degrees and carry the whole thing on throughout the generations. I mean, again, I've brought this up in another podcast and I'll probably bring it up in, in future ones as well, is this is the veil of ISIS. You know, we could initiate everyone in the world, but the veil of ISIS, the veil to the secret doctrine of humanity is not uh, unveiled to anybody. Like you have to do it yourself. You have to lift the veil mm -hmm. and see beyond the symbols towards the actual truth. Because again, we, we well, I think in masonry we tend to think that the symbol is the highest. No, the the symbol is what rests between us and the truth. Right? It is the veil. So this and and it's an important thing. It's not that it's a bad thing, but we have to penetrate the symbol in order to get to the truth. And that's illustrated. By lifting the veil of Isis, you know, her, her face is veiled and her face is the truth um, because the truth is often associated uh, with the feminine. That's why we call it the sacred feminine um, because the spirit is feminine. The Holy Ghost, the, the Holy Spirit is a feminine quality. That's how it is in Christianity and in and, and Hebrew um, or amongst the Jews. So we must lift the veil and see the truth. But that, that's why the, the idea of lifting the veil is a masculine idea. It's a solar idea. Um, and the truth is depicted as being something that's, that's lunar, right? But it takes that solar presence, that solar will, that solar power to lift the veil and find the truth. And with all that being said, Brother Matthias, uh, we usually don't do this. Um, this podcast will stand on its own. Um, about time and astrology and the and the procession of the ages, but 
On our next episode, we're actually gonna we're gonna continue this conversation, a kind of part two, if you will, uh, and we're gonna look at how specific civilizations and cultures throughout the ages have interpreted everything that we've just said. So we're gonna talk about the myths of Lemuria and Atlantis, uh, the yugas of the Hindus, um, the various metallic ages of the of the Greeks and the uh, Indo-Europeans, and we're gonna just gonna continue this uh, conversation the next time. So. Hopefully you have enjoyed this discussion and hopefully you'll look forward to our next. Thank you for listening to Legends of the Craft. This podcast is purely the opinion of brothers Matthias Comcier and Axel Suvari and does not represent the official views of Universal Comasonry. Universal Comasonry is a Masonic order founded on the principles of liberty, equality, and fraternity that admits men and women without distinction of race, religion, or creed. For more information, please visit universalfreemasonry.org.